So what does it take for you to walk out on something? You know you've done it. Whether it's a concert that doesn't live up to your expectations, maybe a sermon, who knows, maybe you've walked out on me, I haven't noticed it, it's fine. Don't come up to me after and be like, hey, remember that time when I walked out on you? Don't do that. But listen, I guess I want us all to consider what's your breaking point? In whatever kind of venue or whatever kind of space you might be in, what's somebody got to say to make you finally, or do to make you finally say, you know what, I've had it. This movie's just so horrible, I'm out of here. This play is just so awful, I'm gone. This sermon is so bad, I've, I've got better things I can be doing right now. And you just get up and walk out. In some senses, that's kind of what we're faced with today. Jesus has given this huge explanation as to what he was doing when he fed the 5,000. Let's review some of what we heard, especially last week. And, and think to yourself, which one of these would tip me over the edge? We heard Jesus push back on the crowd's insistence for another sign. We heard Jesus point the crowd again and again to the work of God, which is belief. We heard Jesus correct the crowd by pointing toward himself as the ultimate bread sent from God, by God, from heaven. We heard Jesus say that the only way to come to him is by the Father, and none who come to him will he ever cast out. We heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. We heard Jesus again link himself with God the Father as the one who has come down from heaven to give life. We heard Jesus claim to be greater than Moses. We heard Jesus say, the bread that I will give for life, the life of the world, is my flesh. Finally, we heard Jesus say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Would that be the breaking point? Jesus, what in the world? We're not cannibals. To eat your flesh and drink your blood, our text opens today, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can take it in? Jesus, it's too much. It's clear from the text that Jesus had gone too far. The crowd, even many of his disciples, he was over the line. So we heard from the end of our text that Jesus said these things in the synagogue there in Capernaum. So we have our answer, at least for the crowd. Something Jesus said has pushed them too far, and they're willing to walk out. They're willing to leave him. Him being this bread of life, the only way to truly be satisfied, to take him in, to eat and drink of him, eat his flesh and drink his blood, is a step too far, Jesus. One lesson I want us to draw from is this. Sometimes we hear exactly what we want to hear. Sometimes we listen for what we want to hear. We all have this problem. It's a hearing problem. When we hear somebody encourage us to do something, tell us to do something that we like to do, that's great. 
I heard that with crystal clear clarity. Thank you. Yes, you're asking me to do something I love to do. Glad to do it. You're great. I'm great. Everybody's great. But what about when we hear something that we don't like to hear? What about when we hear something that's hard for us to hear, like eat and drink of me? We don't like to hear that. We don't process it. We can either submit ourselves to that teaching or go away and act like, I didn't hear you say anything. Right? We deal with this all the time. I was that way as a kid. Yeah, I'll listen to you, mom, dad. I'll listen to you tell me what to do as long as I want to do it. If I don't really want to do that, then I'll conveniently not hear it. I think that's exactly what we see before us in the crowds. It's a problem of hearing. We don't hear very well when it's something that is hard for us. If we hear something that conforms to our opinions, we listen. If something contradicts something fundamental in our brain that already exists in our hearts, we don't listen. In our human wisdom, we know what's best. In our human wisdom, we know it's absurd that Jesus should tell us to come and eat of him and drink of him. We trust our own opinion. We trust the world's opinion. We trust our wits and our smarts. However, when it comes to Jesus, he blows all of that away. Jesus says human wisdom isn't enough. It's not enough. You're not going to be smart enough to figure him out. You're going to have to simply trust him and believe. It's not about our abilities. It's about God's power and plan. We have to trust in God's genius, not our own human wisdom. This is exactly what we've seen so far in John 6. This is what's going on. Jesus leading the people on a new exodus. He's feeding them. Jesus having large crowds gathered around him. They even want to make him king. They call him a great prophet. Yea, Jesus, we're all in. And then two very disturbing things come into this scene. One, Jesus walking on the water in a storm. He's not just some cutesy political rival. He's not just going around town manufacturing tricks and giving people food and drink. He's the Lord of all creation who alone can trample the sea and storm. That's the kind of God he is. Another thing that breaks in to this notion that the crowds have of what life is, is this whole thing about feeding on him, eating of him and drinking of him. Their heads blow apart. What are they supposed to do with that? What kind of belief do these people have? We've already seen it back in John chapter 2 when Jesus did the sign. He he cast out the money changers and all the the different stalls in the temple. Right at the end of that, it said they were great. They believed in that. But then it says this thing right at the end of that. It says, but Jesus did not believe in them. They believed in him, but Jesus did not believe in them. It wasn't faith that they were after. Great, somebody's finally given this corrupt system of comeuppance. That's what they were excited about. They didn't know who Jesus was. 
Same thing here. The lesson is there's a difference between faith and faith, belief and belief, being a disciple and being a disciple. Remember verse 60 specifically calls out disciples in the crowd who weren't hearing what they wanted to hear, not just the nameless crowd, but those who had been following Jesus. That is what it means to be a disciple. Very simply, a disciple is a follower. And that's who some of these people are. These people who are willing to walk away aren't just nobodies in the crowd. They are followers of Jesus. The question in front of us today is this. What does it mean to be a disciple? Not the one kind, but the other kind. What do we hear from Jesus? How should the words of Christ impact our life today? How would you expect Jesus to handle a walkout? How would you expect him to to handle disciples not taking in what he has to say about himself? It's very interesting because he handles them with questions. Jesus is great with questions. You ever view conflict in this way where you have this conflict and you don't know how to move forward? Try the strategy of Jesus where he asks questions. Because those drill in and they get to the heart and that's exactly what he's going to do. We're going to frame it in that way. We're going to have a first series of questions here in 61 through 65 and then another series in 66 through 71. Opening up in 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? People are clearly offended at this. Jesus asked this question, you take offense at these things. Eating and drinking of me is offensive to you. Then he goes on to say something way more, wildly more offensive than that. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? They all had this notion of the, the Daniel 7 Son of Man this king above all kingdoms of the earth, this king to which every person on the entire globe will bow the knee. And he says, what if you see him ascending? They have no grid to put that in. Picking up on this theme of the Son of Man, Jesus is drilling into the heart of what they expect. Jesus is saying, you don't really see me yet. This would have been wildly more offensive. Again, he's not backing away with these questions. He's pushing into their heart. Jesus is the one who has come down and offered himself as living food. If that's not offensive enough to them, he's telling them he will also ascend. We, We know, though, before he ascends into heaven, The way that he had come, he must go through death. This line of Jesus is so costly and the crowds don't catch any of it. He's saying, I've got to die. He's going to go through death, through the grave, glorious resurrection, and then ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father even now. 
One commentator notes, the moment of Jesus' greatest degradation and shame is the moment of his glorification. The path of his return to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. He's tying the great glory of the Son of Man with who he is. He's saying, if you're offended just by me saying this, be offended by something real. This is who I am. I am the God King. And I am coming to save you. He's saying, you're you're being offended by the wrong things. You haven't even understood yet who I am. You think it's a scandal to eat and drink of Jesus' body and blood? It's not nearly scandalous enough until you realize whose body you're taking in and whose blood it is. And he's saying it's the glorious Son of Man who will again ascend to the Father. This is offensive. Time and time again we read this. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. If you had the expectation of a Messiah King who would come and fit fit into your life and fix all of your problems, dominate all your enemies, provide a never-ending supply of food, that would be pretty great. That would be great. That's exactly what the people wanted. And Jesus is saying, I am not that kind of king. That is not why I've come right now. He's saying, you're you're not getting who I am. Before we put these disciples on the hook for their incredulity, let's think about ourselves for a moment. What about this Christianity is offensive to us? Do we find it very hard or really easy to admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior? Is it easy or very difficult to admit that we cannot save ourselves? How about someone we love and cherish dearly who is hurting? Is it easy or very difficult for us to admit that that we can't save them? Is it offensive to us to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ once we see that it is utterly exclusive? That there is no other way, no other truth, no other life by which we gain salvation. Is that offensive in some way to us? Do we take offense at believing in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Christ? Are we offended that that we would actually believe that the Bible is sufficient? That it is God's revelation to us? That it is inspired and inerrant. Be real easy to look at these disciples in this nameless crowd and say, look at their incredulity with Jesus. They don't get it. And we do. And yet I think the gospel comes along to all of us and offends every single one of us. 
Instead of backing away from that, Jesus enters into that. He says, you need to know who I am. Jesus does not leave them without hope. He goes on to spell out who gets it and who doesn't. How will we be able to see this ascending, glorious Son of Man? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He says this, only the Spirit is going to give you this. You will only have eyes to see if the Spirit gives you eyes to see. You will only have ears to hear if the Spirit gives you ears to hear. What is this image that we're meant to see? I think Revelation does a good job of giving us this ascended Christ. Revelation chapter 1, picking up in 12, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the glorious ascended son of man. Jesus is saying, the only way that you will glimpse this is if the spirit does a work in you. You're offended for all the wrong reasons. Look to the God-man, look to Christ to save you. The beauty, his power, his holiness, his goodness cannot be captured by the flesh. You will not figure it out by works of the flesh. You cannot know enough to figure him out. Does this mean we aren't to study? No, of course we're to study and grow and learn about him more and more. But the only way that we'll ever see him for who he truly is, is if the Spirit is at work leading us to Christ. Jesus is talking to this crowd who has a worldly grasp of who he is. And he comes into that worldly idea of him and he says, no, flesh will not make this happen. You cannot will yourself in. The Spirit must give life. This is a theme that runs throughout John in chapter 1. The Spirit comes upon Jesus and remains in 3. The Spirit does the work of new birth. Here in chapter 6, the Spirit gives life. In chapter 7, Jesus promises the Spirit's presence and power literally coming out of bellies like rivers of living water. It's incredible. So what's the point? Here's the point. Sin so captures us. Sin and death so have a grip on us that there's nothing in our flesh that we can do about it. Nothing. Without God's intervention, not one of us would believe. Notice verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Again, he's going back to verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I say, this too is offensive. To a people who think they figured Jesus out, and they say, we understand you, Jesus. 
You're going to be real good for us politically, and you're going to be good for our bellies. And to that, he comes and says, you will never figure me out thinking about me only like that. Finally, notice the statement of Jesus about belief, but there are some, verse 64, some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Wait a minute, there are disciples who don't believe? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. There are disciples, people sitting up in church who don't believe. Here's also a reference to Jesus' betrayal. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. It's not just this random betrayal, but it involves a person. There are a couple of applications. One, it's okay to wrestle through doubts about Christianity. That's fine. That's fair. That's not what the crowd is doing. They're not coming to Jesus loaded with questions. Hey, explain what you mean by the Son of Man ascending. They're not coming to him with their offense. They're willing, when they hear something they don't agree with, they're willing to walk out the door. Listen, it's one thing to, to wrestle with who Jesus is honestly and to ask good questions. And I think this needs to be the venue to do that within the body of Christ. You are welcome to ask questions, good questions about who Jesus is, who you are, about salvation, about growth in Christ. All those things are welcome. But do you see that's not what the crowd is doing? They've made their minds up. They're not asking questions. There's another application. At its core, it's this question, am I looking for a Jesus that conforms to my life? Or am I willing to listen to him as the only one who has the words of the Spirit and life? Am I looking for a Jesus that conforms to me? Who, who, who meets all my needs but says anything that's contrary to what I want I'm willing to, I'm ready to walk out. I think that question has to come before all of us today. What do we expect of Jesus? We're going to lean on our own understanding. Or in all, all of our ways, acknowledge Christ and be led by him. This leads to a second question of Jesus. Before we read this question, we hear this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Think of the tragedy of that statement. It's a great quote by F.F. Bruce. Really simply listen to this. Quote, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. End quote. What they wanted from him, he would not give. And what he brought to offer, his very life, death, and resurrection, they would not receive. We need to mark closely this reality that Jesus was willing to let the majority walk away from him. In a test, in a trial, they no longer believed. He was willing to let them walk away. 
There's a mark and essential truth about being a disciple of Christ. Discipleship, again, means following him and following Christ, being with him, staying with him. Occasionally, we wander off like lost sheep, and Jesus comes after us and snatches us back to himself. But being a disciple means we follow him, thick and thin. Whether we fully get it or not, we're in. We're all in. So if Jesus doesn't get us, give us what we want, do we leave? Things don't go well as a Christian. Things don't go well at work. Things don't go well at school. And so then suddenly it's Jesus' fault. Well, he's not giving me what I want. Not as popular as I want to, to be. I'm not as smart as I want to be. He's not meeting me halfway. So what does Jesus do in the face of this walkout? He turns to the 12 and asks a question. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? This is the first reference in this gospel to the 12. So you have the crowds, thousands of people following Jesus. He feeds them and they pack in to a little church building. They, they have church and then they walk out on Jesus. And then he looks at the 12 and says, are you guys going to go too? What sorrow attended Jesus's life and ministry? I know it's easy to read this as though it's fine. He, he, he was okay with it. He's Jesus. He knew it was going to happen. Do you think rejection means nothing to him? As a man, was he full of emotion? Yeah, we're told he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He just has these followers walk out on him. And then you can, you can almost feel the tension in this question when he looks at the 12 and says, how about you? Are you going to go too? And then we have this incredible statement by Peter. Of course, it's Peter who speaks up. You got to love that. One of the great statements of Christian faith in the Bible, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? And if we don't understand what he's saying, he, he tells us. You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The statement breaks into four. First, where else are we to go? What a surprisingly honest profession of faith. The, the reality of Peter's question here acknowledges something. It acknowledges that they have options. And it acknowledges that they've thought about those options. They've actually processed them together. The thought had crossed their mind. Can we go to? Should we go? Because when Jesus asks this question, he answers, where else can we go? So in their discussions, they're like, hey, we could go this direction or that direction. We could do this. We could do that. And the answer they conclude with is, there's no else, nowhere else for us to go. 
Is Jesus your only option? Have you become convinced by this gospel that you've come to that Christ is it and Christ alone is it? He's still holding out other options over there somewhere. Peter says, there's nowhere else for us to go. Second, Peter gives his reasoning. You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here, Peter clarifies what he and the other disciples are thinking. You have the words of eternal life. Think about contrast so far in John's gospel. We see so many signs and and people see these signs and they are willing to walk away from Jesus. Think of all the disciples, the 12 have seen. They've seen way more signs than anybody else. And they say, hey, none of those are good enough. When Peter reflects on why he's sticking around with Jesus, he's saying, it's your words. You alone have the word of life. We see signs and yet we need your word. We need your gospel, Jesus. We need you. We don't need a version given to us to satisfy our every whim. We need grace. We need, Jesus, what you bring us, what you offer us. This theme will come again and again and again in John's gospel. Are you willing to accept the word or do you need signs? Think about Thomas. Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe it until I touch his scars. I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus says, no way, no way I'm letting you touch me. What does Jesus do? He graciously shows him his scars and takes his hand and places them on his scars, on his side. He says, it's real, it's me. He condescends, but then he says this, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do we trust his word? Or are we waiting around, clicking our fingers, waiting on a sign? If Jesus will only conform to me, to my image of him, then I'll be good. But if he doesn't conform, I'm I'm not coming in. The fact that Jesus is giving life through his word is, is at the very heart and center of all the scripture. You don't have to get past Genesis 1 to see that. God speaks and life comes in. Words give life when they come from God. This is our profession as believers. We know that Jesus has come and he has come with life-giving word. What happened in the garden? What happened in the temptation of Adam and Eve? The temptation was to have them not believe the word of God. And what's the consequence of not believing the word of God? Death. Jesus is not saying something new. He's saying something very, very old. What you need and what I need is the word of God. We need Jesus himself, who is the word. So what are we going to do with this word of life that has come to us? Peter says, we have believed. They are doing the work of God in believing on Christ, having abandoned every other source of life. They are banking on Christ. 
The goal of John's whole gospel is belief, and here Peter expresses that belief, although it's tiny. Right? Peter's not going to be the model disciple, is he? In a moment of great pain and weakness, he's going to deny his Lord. Is he let go? Jesus abandoned a weak faith like this. Lord, we believe in you. No, he does not despise Peter's weakness of faith. He knows very well that Peter, in a moment of trial, will deny him. But he does not despise his discipleship. Child of God, one who wrestles with these things, know that Jesus will not cast you out. If he has snatched you and you belong to him, nothing will change that. Eventually, Peter will be willing to do crazy things in the name of Jesus, including die. Jesus does not despise his comment, we have believed. Fourth, we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here he links several themes that Jesus has been saying. It's a beautiful statement of faith. He links Jesus with holiness and God the Father. It's not as fully orbed a confession as we'll hear later on from the apostles, but it's vast. Contrast this statement of Peter, the Holy One of God, this grand statement with the, the, the view of the crowd. He's a prophet. No, they're coming to see Jesus as something different. What about this knowledge that he talks about here? We have come to know, Calvin says of this knowledge, quote, knowledge is connected with faith because we are certain and fully convinced of the truth of God, not in the same manner as human sciences are learned, but when the Spirit seals it on our hearts, end quote. God uses knowledge to bring faith. Jesus responds to this great profession of faith by this, did I not choose you, the twelve? I love that. Did I not choose you, the twelve? He's reminding them again, this is not your doing. He says something similar in Matthew 16 to Peter's profession. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This lesson concludes with a scathing statement concerning one of the twelve. Jesus says one of them is a devil. Here, Judas is spoken of by name, specifically the fact that he would betray Jesus. So link these two realities together really quick. This glorious ascended son of man that I read to you about from Revelation. And Judas, a devil. Crash all of that together. How is he going to betray Jesus? It's awful. He's going to kiss the face of the Son of God and betray him to death. With a kiss, Jesus will be handed over to his enemies. Jesus will go willingly. He will go quietly. Like a sheep before its shears, he will be silent. 
He will be beaten and mocked. He will carry his cross to the place of the skull and he will die there. All of this Jesus knew and he knew that Judas was going to do it and yet he went through with it. You're like, why didn't he kick him out? He was one of the 12. Why why not cast Judas out? Because Judas had an important role to play. In the sovereignty of God, Judas was going to betray Jesus. You see, he's accepting in himself the betrayal that all of us deserve. We deserve to be abandoned, handed over to justice. He does not. We deserve to go and die for sin. He does not. And yet he takes this betrayal for us. couple of questions. Have you seen this Jesus? Have you heard this good news? Has it given you life? I think one application could be this. In evangelism, be patient. If what Jesus is saying is true, then you can never talk anybody into the kingdom of God. You don't have the right answers. You don't know enough content. Unless God calls them, they will not come. They need to hear truth. And we need to be able to give a defense for that truth. But you will never talk anybody into the kingdom of God. You could probably talk some people out of it. Another application is this. There are three kinds of people here, three types. And we need to consider which one am I? There are those who follow Jesus for a while, thrilled at all that he has going on, thrilled to receive this grand meal. Yeah, we're with you, Jesus. And when he says that stops, then the people stop. They don't follow him anymore. Are there those of us in this room who follow Jesus like that? Hey, as long as things are good and I'm getting from Jesus what I want to get, then we're going to be good to go. And as soon as I don't get it, I'm going to put everything on him, blame everything on him, and walk out the back door. It's another type of person here. Those who on the inside pretend goodness and on the outside even look good, but ultimately are utterly lost. And that's Judas. He's an insider. He's one of the 12. He he looks good on the outside. He's respectable enough to even carry the money bag for the disciples. And Jesus calls him a devil. You can look good. You can say all the right things and be empty. And then there's a third category. Those like Peter, with faith, faith just like a mustard seed. It's not huge. It's not great. He doesn't have all the right words to say, but he's at least willing to say this much. Where else do we have to go? Every place else, every other path, Jesus, that we could go on in this life will lead to death. The only one leading to life is behind you. Peter is willing to say it. Which one are we? Which one? Can we, like Peter, say to Jesus, where else do we have to go?
You're the only one who has the words of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. We need your word. We need this life. May we follow you closely. Lord, you have done a great work just to give us faith like a mustard seed. Would you shape us in light of that? Lord, would you grow us in faith, reminding us again and again, where else do we have to go? Where else do we have to turn? Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.